Welcome to Skim This. We need to talk to the manager because things are kind of flying off the rails this week. We've got worker shortages in hospitals as a result of vaccine mandates and Hollywood facing its biggest union strike in decades. And don't get us started on Congress, where it's once again crunch time over, you know, funding the government. Then, if you're completely confused about whether or not you can get a booster shot, we'll break down who's eligible. Later, we'll be the ones to get down to business, rounding up some surprising moves by Apple and Facebook, and letting you know why now might be a good time to get started on your holiday shopping. Finally, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we'll spotlight how Latino voters are shaking up U.S. politics. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, people around the country are losing their jobs. Wait, what? Here's the context. As more COVID-19 vaccine mandates go into place, more workers are being fired or quitting because they didn't get their shots. Like in Massachusetts, where dozens of state troopers have resigned ahead of a mid-October deadline to get vaxxed. Or in North Carolina, where almost 200 employees have been fired out of the state hospital system. Or here in New York, where by Monday, all healthcare workers had to get vaccinated. State officials estimated that some 72,000 hospital workers are not fully vaxxed, and a lot of them have been prepared to lose their job instead of rolling up their sleeves. So far, only a few dozen have actually been terminated, but that number could go up. These mandates going into place in state healthcare systems will likely worsen the already dire shortage of healthcare workers around the U.S. So we'll be keeping an eye out as these mandates go into effect around the country. Okay, next headline. A looming strike threatening to shut down TV and film production across the U.S. Before you renew that Netflix subscription, here's what's going on. Hollywood is facing its biggest union walkout since World War II. On Friday, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE for short, is going to vote about whether or not to go on strike. That union has over 100,000 members who make the films and shows we love. From cinematographers to production assistants and special effects coordinators to studio lighting technicians. So why do they want to go on strike? Members say they want to get breaks for meals, work in a safer environment, and see changes to the long hours often involved in production. When the average workday for a film crew is around 12 to 14 hours, and when pay is low, often around 16 bucks an hour for women on production crews, you can see why they're asking for more. And while these conditions have plagued Hollywood for years, the pandemic has made production schedules even more grueling and demanding for crews. To see how, just go on your phone. The Instagram account IATSE Stories has been anonymously collecting anecdotes from workers about their treatment. So far, a number of actors have voiced their support for IATSE members, including Seth Rogen, Jane Fonda, and Katherine Heigl. And it's safe to say some studios and streaming companies are going to be watching this vote very closely, as this strike would affect productions from companies including Netflix. Results from the strike are going to be announced on Monday, so stay tuned for whether these union members will get their Hollywood ending. For our next headline, we're heading east to D.C. We helped build a state, Mr. Chairman, but we could not forge a nation. 
the war in Afghanistan did not end on the terms we wanted. That's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testifying on Capitol Hill. This week, they got grilled by the House Armed Services Committee in the first hearing since that chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. A withdrawal that involved the death of 13 U.S. service members and the deaths of 10 Afghan civilians in a U.S. drone strike. In that hearing, there was a lot of finger-pointing. Republicans wanted to know whether President Biden listened to military advice after Milley revealed that military leaders didn't want to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Democrats focused on the Trump administration's actions, from entering good-faith negotiations with the Taliban in February 2020 to allegedly not leaving behind a withdrawal plan for Team Biden. But Milley did say if the military overstayed that August 31st withdrawal date, it would have put Americans still left in the country at risk and would have required more troops. But regardless of whether the U.S. should have left, we have. And now, top military leaders say it's a real possibility that terror groups like al-Qaeda or ISIS could rebuild in Afghanistan, meaning the terrorist threat to America could be rising and that Afghanistan is still going to be on our radar. And our final headline this week? We'll keep this short and sweet, but March Madness isn't just for the boys. Here's the context. The term March Madness used to refer to the D1 men's college basketball tournament every spring. But this year, March Madness is getting a makeover and will now refer to the women's Division I basketball tournament too. That announcement follows a lot of people calling out the NCAA for some pretty unequal treatment over the years. Remember those viral photos of women's skimpy weight rooms compared to male players' fully decked out gyms? It also emerged recently that despite the NCAA having the rights to use March Madness for the women's tournament for years, it refused to let it be used for anything other than the men's tournament. Oh, and then when asked about that, the NCAA lied. So it's awesome the best women's college basketball players will get the added buzz of playing under the March Madness brand this year. But it's a shame they'll have to do so under a banner reading NCAA. In case you missed it, Congress is in crunch time right now. Between a potential government shutdown, negotiations over that infrastructure bill, because that's still a thing, and the debt ceiling, they've got a lot on their to-do list. To make sense of what's going on, we called up Kadia Goba, a national politics reporter at BuzzFeed News. So, Kadia, the government is supposed to shut down at midnight tonight if Congress doesn't fund the government. But it sounds likely right now that we're going to be able to avoid a shutdown at the last minute. Are you confident in predicting that? Yeah, I think we are seeing that they will actually pass a CR, a continuing resolution. And what it does is it funds the government until about December. It's just a short-term measure that temporarily funds all the things that the government needs to pay for until they can like get their act together for a longer funding bill, which typically lasts for the entire fiscal year. It feels as though we leave this stuff to the last minute all the time. I don't know if they're adrenaline junkies in Congress and they just like trying to meet that deadline as close as possible. But why do you think we can never really get our act together until it's truly the 11th hour? 
I mean, I think it's just what you said. Congress can never get their act together. I just think in general, Congress moves very, very slowly. To get anything done on a national level just goes typically very slowly. But keep in mind, most members of Congress, most presidents don't actually want the government not to be funded. Stepping out of our interview for a second, just before we publish this, Congress passed that bill to fund the government through December, and it's currently on its way to Biden's desk. So good call, Kadia. All right, back to the conversation. This week has been described as a really consequential week for Democrats because they're looking to push through Biden's $1 trillion infrastructure plan, which already passed the Senate. But in actuality, we've been talking about this infrastructure bill forever. And do you think that there actually is a lot of significance for infrastructure or other Democratic agenda items right now? Or do you feel like in six months we're going to be having the same conversation? Well, I certainly hope not. Infrastructure is not a toy thing, Alex. It's a thing that needs to get attention. There are many states in this country where things are failing. There is missing broadband. So it definitely needs to be addressed. We got the trillion dollar package, which is the hard infrastructure, which will focus on bridges and tunnels and broadband. There are ongoing negotiations right this very moment about this soft measure. And soft infrastructure is all the social aspects that will, or the social money that will go into this. Money for childcare and money for different things. Okay, so there are two bills up for debate here. The hard infrastructure bill that's already passed the Senate and a softer one that's still up for debate that funds social programs and is also a little bit pricier. And while what those bills are trying to fund is important, you could also argue that the government running out of money is also critical. Do you think Congress is tackling its priorities in the right order? I think after this conversation today about soft infrastructure specifically, it's it's really going to be about the debt ceiling. The government projects that it will be unable to meet its financial obligations somewhere in between October 15th and November 4th. If that happens, yes, experts say it could spike interest rates, it could plummet stocks. But what it really means for the American people is that it puts the government in a bind to pay their bills at home, right? That's Medicare, military benefits, federal paying federal employees. So yeah, that could be a problem. I want to keep in mind that in the last administration, we did this. We suspended it three times before. So I have faith that they'll get it together again, working on the last minute. But I, I do think they'll pull through. Kadia, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. A simple question with a complex answer. Do you need one or not? You know what we're talking about. The CDC late today clearing the way now for millions of Americans to get booster shots. COVID boosters. The CDC has approved them for millions of Americans, but not for everyone. Even the government has seemed like a house divided on boosters, with experts and top officials struggling to get on the same page about who needs what. If you've got questions about boosters, We've got answers in 60 seconds. Earlier in the summer, as Americans got vaxxed and infections were low, the CDC was saying, boosters who? Everyone's protected enough for now. 
But by August, as Delta spread and infections climbed, President Biden announced a change of plans, saying we're going to give everyone boosters eight months after their second dose. Cue a lot of people showing up to get boosters only to be turned away. Last week, the CDC hoped to clear things up, saying actually only some of us need to roll up our sleeves again soon, and only if you meet certain criteria. Except that criteria has been confusing. Even some health professionals are stumped. Don't worry, we've been taking notes on who's eligible. For now, you only need to think about a booster if you, one, got the Pfizer vaccine, two, got your second shot more than six months ago, and three, if you meet any of these descriptions. You're 65 or older. You're a resident in a long-term care facility. You're 18 to 64 years old and work in a high-risk setting, like a hospital or if you're 18 to 64 years old and have an underlying health condition. Biden, who's 78 years old and got his second dose in January, was at the front of the line and got his booster on live TV on Monday. Meanwhile, if you're not part of the Pfizer gang, the jury's still out on whether or not you'll need a booster from Moderna or J&J. So watch this space. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Hey, skimmers. I want to tell you about a show I think you're going to love. It's called We Can Do Hard Things, and it's hosted by untamed author Glennon Doyle. Join Glennon each week to drop the fake and talk honestly about the hard and do what we were all meant to do down here. Help each other carry the hard so we can all live a little bit lighter and braver, more free and less alone. Listen and follow We Can Do Hard Things, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back to the show. If you've ever turned on the TV looking for some financial news, you may have heard something like this. Stocks hitting all-time highs. Spec, 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 spec. Talk about CEO OMG. Okay, cringy abbreviations and overexcited hosts aside, money news is exciting. And here on Skim This, we're not always all business ourselves. But the U.S. ultimately is, and we want to help make sense of how developments in the stock market or in Silicon Valley can actually have a huge impact on us. So from time to time, we're going to check in on a few companies we all know and sometimes love to see what's up and how things might be changing for you, the consumer. This week, we're talking tech, starting with Apple. The people who make all of our devices and all those annoying charging cables have been trying to get into personal health for a while. Your iPhone already tracks your steps, your Apple Watch tracks your heart rate, and your health app stores all that info. But now, Apple is reportedly taking things a step further. And besides helping you track your physical activity, they also want to check in on your mental health. Apple's apparently working on tech that could spot signs of depression and cognitive decline in users by measuring things like daily physical activity, specific typing patterns, or facial expressions. If you're thinking, shouldn't a certified medical professional be the one to diagnose those conditions? Apple kind of agrees and reportedly knows it's not fully playing doctor here. Instead, its future plans could include making suggestions about how and where to seek care. All of this work is still in the research phase for now. But if Apple's studies ultimately prove its tech can accurately provide warning signs for mental health issues and cognitive decline, 
It would help Apple carve out a larger slice of the $4 trillion U.S. healthcare industry. There's no time to waste, since its competitors, like Google, which bought Fitbit, and Amazon, which offers Amazon telemedicine to its employees, are already at the table. The next company we're watching is Facebook. A few weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal alleged that Facebook, which owns Instagram, knows that the IG app has really harmful effects on teen girls, but had downplayed that info publicly. In one internal report, the company found that Instagram, quote, makes body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And this week, after being put on blast, the head of Instagram tried to do some damage control. He announced that Facebook is hitting pause on the development of an Instagram app for kids. If you're thinking Instagram for kids sounds like a really bad idea in the first place, more than 40 state attorneys general agree with you and had already asked the tech giant to stop development. Still, whether Facebook decides to scrap IG for kids altogether remains to be seen. And just this week, the journal reported that Facebook is looking beyond Instagram to attract tweens. In one company presentation, Facebook described tweens as a, quote, valuable and untapped audience. And another Facebook exec reportedly wrote that the company had, quote, a historic opportunity for youth to experience the same positive benefits we have through social media. Honestly, we're not sure what positive benefit they're talking about. Though considering Facebook's peers, including YouTube and TikTok, already have versions of their apps for kids, whether or not Facebook tries to get into the game itself probably won't keep kids from getting on social media. And finally, last week, New York City Council passed legislation to try to improve working conditions for food delivery workers. While that might sound like a piece of local news, it could have a big impact on the gig economy nationwide. Delivery workers regularly deal with difficult working conditions, from biking through torrential rain to being on the front lines of the pandemic. Not to mention, between car accidents and frequent robberies and assaults, it's a dangerous job. But that doesn't mean it pays well. A lot of the money you pay to get pizza delivered straight to your couch goes to the DoorDashes, Grubhubs, or Uber Eats of the world, not to the workers themselves. New York City's new legislation aims to fix that by making apps disclose their tipping policies, prohibiting apps from charging delivery workers for insulated food bags, which can be pricey, and allowing workers to decide when and where they'll deliver to. This new legislation, though, doesn't give food workers all the power. They're still considered contract workers, aka ineligible for workers' comp and healthcare. And some lawmakers are calling this the bare minimum to treat delivery workers humanely. Still, some think these new laws in New York, one of the busiest food delivery markets in the world, could have a ripple effect around the country and could impact other tech companies that also rely on contract workers, like Uber and Lyft. And while Grubhub and Uber Eats say they support these new laws, it's possible that could change if other cities start to follow New York's lead. Here's a sad image. Millions of dolls and other holiday toys are stranded in warehouses or in shipping containers on the high seas. They may not make it to the U.S. in time for the holidays, which is bad news for Santa and for parents. We're not being melodramatic. That's really happening, as a breakdown of the global supply chain threatens to spoil holiday shopping plans all over the world. 
So retailers of all kinds are facing challenges along the supply chain at every step of the way. That's Abba Badarai, the national retail reporter at The Washington Post. Starting with the factories where they're making these products, often in Asia, where they are short-staffed, maybe because of COVID reasons, they're dealing with closures, they're dealing with shortages of supplies like plastic and metals. The lucky products that do get assembled aren't necessarily out of trouble. So they're going from the factories, they're oftentimes getting stuck because there aren't enough shipping containers to take these products across the ocean. And even once they get to the United States, there aren't enough workers to unload those boats, all the way down to, you know, not having enough truck drivers to deliver those products to your home. Considering retailers make a serious chunk of their yearly revenue during the short holiday season, Botterai says many are in troubleshooting mode, doing everything they can to try to cope with these supply chain issues. We're seeing folks like Walmart and Home Depot chartering their own ships. We're seeing a number of other retailers pay huge amounts of money to move their products by air instead of ocean. Things they would have never done before, but now they really feel strapped for time. Walmart and Home Depot probably have the cash to charter container ships, but finding enough workers in the U.S. to get products into stores could be even more challenging. That's a huge concern going forward. Every retailer is coming out with huge announcements saying they want to hire tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of workers. It's a real race seeing companies offer all sorts of perks, thousands of dollars in signing bonuses, cash prizes, food trucks, raffles. They're just using every tool at their disposal to get as many workers in as possible. Complicating that race for workers is the fact that these holiday jobs look quite a bit different than they used to. Think more Frances McDormand in Nomadland than Zoe Deschanel in Elf. A lot of these seasonal jobs move from the store floors where maybe you would be helping customers to warehouses where you're sort of on the outskirts of town, maybe working 10 or 12 hour shifts. So these are fundamentally different holiday jobs than we're used to. And I think that also shrinks the pool down of available workers. So how are stores dealing? Botterai says you might see some retailers start their holiday sales even earlier. Target is already rolling out a new October holiday sale, partly because of concerns certain holiday faves might not be available later in the season. Other retailers are just raising prices, passing along the extra costs of flying clothes to the U.S. instead of sailing them across the Pacific. So it's probably worth putting aside a little extra money for your shopping this year. And to make sure Baderai wasn't exaggerating all these shopping disruptions, we had to ask if she was following her own advice. Her answer was, absolutely. You know, I gave in and last weekend I sat down and I started ordering gifts for my two young kids. So I am moving in that direction, but it feels weird. It's September and it feels like I don't even know what anybody's going to want by the time the holidays roll around. So it is a little bit of a mind exercise. To get caught up on all your other financial news, you can skip that cable subscription and head on over to the skim.com slash money to sign up for our weekly money newsletter. For the first time ever in my history as a Latino voter in California, I got texted by a presidential campaign. And it's sad that that made me so happy, but it did. That's Lisa Garcia Bedoya, a professor at UC Berkeley and an expert on Latino politics. That text from the Biden campaign last year was an event invitation. So she RSVP'd yes, expecting to get nerdy and hear about issues affecting Latinos in California. But when she arrived, the event was... Basically a gala with music and Eva Longoria and other people for Latino Heritage Month. 
But Doya kind of saw through what was going on. For years, she'd been studying how American political parties reach out to Latino voters. And she'd come to the conclusion that most of that outreach was symbolic, not substantive. Politicians of both parties think that just reaching out to us culturally, playing a mariachi band, eating a taco, doing those kinds of things, that's what matters rather than talking about the things that actually people care about in their day-to-day lives. Celebrating our heritage is absolutely important, but we also need safe schools, safe neighborhoods, good jobs, and the ability to access health care, particularly given how our communities have been devastated by COVID. Bedoya says she wasn't surprised when 2020 election results showed Latino voters drifting away from Democrats and toward Donald Trump. 2020 was yet another election in which Latino voters were hyped up as a critical voting bloc that could decide the race, only for political parties to roll out a kind of one-size-fits-all style of campaigning. You know, events with celebrities and tacos, or an overwhelming number of Spanish TV commercials in the final days before an election. Democrats in particular were counting on Latinos to vote out President Trump because of his stance on immigration. But in states with large Latino populations like Texas, Latino support for Trump, especially among Latino men, actually increased in 2020 compared to 2016. Bedoya says local polling had been showing exactly that. But the media and political parties reacted to the news with surprise, which she said was telling. So at least we sort of are acknowledging intersectionality, right? That the intersection of gender and race may affect how people see the world or how responsive peoples might be to particular political messages. But that's still a very thin frame. We should not have been surprised that there were gender differences in Latino voter behavior. We should not have been surprised that Cubans and Venezuelans would be very sensitive to a message about socialism. And so the definition of what's a story worth telling in some ways, was a product of the lack of fundamental understanding of the community in the first place. 2021 isn't a major election year. And that's actually one reason we wanted to talk about Latino voters during Hispanic Heritage Month. Because if politicians only talk about the sway of one of America's fastest growing groups right before Election Day, when candidates are already picked and it's just time to translate TV ads into Spanish, it's too late. So in this non-election year, let's dive into three ways Latinos are changing American politics and how American politics is and is not changing to accommodate them. The first thing to know is that the Latino population is growing pretty much everywhere. Nationwide, Hispanic population growth made up more than half of all U.S. population growth from 2010 to 2020. Somebody I know once said, if you're not yet related to a Latino, you will be soon. (laughs) That's Stephanie Valencia. She helped lead Obama's Latino outreach in 2008 and more recently founded Equis Labs, which advises groups on the Latino electorate. Every state in the country experienced growth in the Latino population. They are truly what I believe are one of the last groups of swing voters in this country. Increasingly, Latino population growth is occurring in places you might not expect. According to the 2020 census, North and South Dakota, Vermont, Louisiana, Tennessee, and New Hampshire saw the greatest Hispanic population growth over the last decade. A recent NBC News report also found the reason for that growth was largely similar to why most people relocate, for opportunity. Which is a good segue to our second big takeaway about Latino voters, one we hinted at earlier. They're not single-issue voters. 
A lot of politicians overcorrect and think that they need to just talk to Latinos about immigration. However, like we also want to send our kids to good schools. We also are small business owners. We also worry about living paycheck to paycheck and having good health care. So we are multi-issue voters. However, the way some politicians talk to Latinos is like you would think we only care about immigration. And that is like a huge, huge mistake. Polls from the 2020 election revealed that the top three issues for Latino voters were the same three issues for all voters, the economy, healthcare, and COVID-19. Immigration, meanwhile, was number eight on the list behind climate change and Supreme Court appointments. While Latino voters may report caring about the same issues as all Americans, Lisa Garcia Bedoya says the term Latino is only useful to a point. Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Mexicans may all be lumped together as Latino, but the countries they or their ancestors came from matters when it comes to understanding their political beliefs and sense of identity. If we think about Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, many of whom came to the mainland of the United States at the time of Jim Crow, that mattered in the sense of how they were treated, the opportunity structures their families had, the fact that the largest wave of Cuban migration came after the civil rights movement or in the midst of the civil rights movement and that Cubans were defined as white in Miami-Dade by and large has an effect then on people's politics and people's engagement moving forward. As a result, Bedoya says, it's not surprising Puerto Ricans and Cuban Americans respond to political developments like President Trump's immigration crackdown in remarkably different ways. For instance, in Florida, a majority of Cuban Americans voted for President Trump in 2020, while Puerto Ricans overwhelmingly voted for Biden. Everyone's going to work through that differently, and you're going to have different degrees of identification with immigrant members of the community. We're more than a year away from next year's midterm elections. But if we learned anything talking to Bedoya and Valencia, it's that if politicians want to count on Latino voters in next year's midterms, they should be reaching out now. The Latino population in the U.S. now exceeds 62 million people. And while they're not a monolith, they are a voting bloc, large enough to help a politician win in a tight race. Or to vote someone out if they fail to deliver on their promises. For Democrats in D.C., many of whom campaigned on passing immigration reform if elected, that's a lot to live up to. Latino voters know that Joe Biden and Democrats control the two major legislative branches of government and expect solutions. But that's national politics, and most politics is local. As Latinos increasingly spread out around the country, and as their beliefs evolve and reflect more regional variations, Bedoya says it's critical that politicians and political parties engage with Latinos locally. Doing so, she says, will benefit everyone. After the election, people were lauding Stacey Abrams, which they should. She did amazing work. But she did amazing work because she knows Georgia. And she did amazing work because she's been working in that community for years and really understands how to reach out to people. If you were to take her to Arizona, it's not going to work in the same kind of way. But that's the frame, especially on the Democratic side. They're always looking for the magic bullet. And there is no magic bullet. You don't fit in our race paradigm because we are neither black nor white. We are a mix. We don't fit in the immigrant paradigm because most of us are not. We don't fit in the 
you have one lived experience, one language, one food, one music. So, so the diversity within the community, I think, really does allow us some insight into the different kinds of fissures in American life. And that if actually people were to pay more attention to the experiences of Latinos, we would have a better understanding of how American politics is working writ large in terms of its ability to be a truly multiracial democracy that actually serves everyone. And all Americans need this. Trust in government has gone down exponentially in the United States. People are very cynical about politicians, about politics, about the ability for us to collectively resolve any of the big problems that exist in society. And so what an attention to the local and the specific that is required to actually effectively organize and engage Latino voters is actually the same focus that would be good for all voters. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had help this week from Sajin Coriellis. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.